Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. Today we've got a special guest from both Twitter and the world of democratic consulting nonprofits, um, Aaron Kleinman, who is at Bobby Big Wheel uh, on Twitter. It's a great handle. Makes, great handle. Makes sense. Um, perfect, perfect uh, representation. Yeah, I like to see people who have not totally professionalized their social media, you know, where they're just like retain some humanity. Yeah, a little bit of that forum spirit. But Aaron does work uh, on basically state legislatures, so he's got a sort of give smart thing. There's like going for the 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 greatest uh, effect per dollar, and that's definitely in state legislatures as opposed to. Um, you know, presidential elections or even a lot of Senate elections, which get, routinely get in the tens of millions of dollars. Um, but yeah, it's a pretty good conversation and he's got many words of wisdom. Yeah, lots of insights into state races, but also uh, it talks about the importance for protecting democracy and protecting another attempt to steal the election uh, yeah. by the Trumpists. So it's it's super important. Very interesting conversation. And uh, yeah, I think I think everybody's going to enjoy this one. Get nerdy. Get nerdy about state races and about electoral politics, people. Yeah. Sounds weird to say, but it is one of the strongest steps to take against uh, stopping America from becoming a fascist dictatorship. Uh, go and fight out these state legislative elections. But... Quickly, before we get to that, um, we got to mention, as usual, that this podcast is sponsored by the American Prospect Magazine. Um, and if you support the show, the $10 a month tier on Patreon, you'll get a free digital subscription to the uh, website and a discounted print subscription if you want it. $5 a month, you'll get access to our extensive library of bonus episodes. Um, but other than that, you can always just enjoy the free stuff and uh, go about your business. Yeah, we appreciate uh, your support and your listening. Shoot us angry emails if you want. Give us any kind of communication you like. We like to hear from you. And uh, just, just thanks for hanging out, whether you like us or not. So without further ado, let's uh, get to our interview with Aaron. Aaron, welcome, uh, welcome to the program. I guess to, to kick us off here, um, can you tell us about your your organization? Um, you know, what's your story? What do you what do you guys do? Yeah, no, so thanks for having me, Ryan. Um, so I'm the director of research at the States Project, and we are an organization that is dedicated to uh, basically improving state legislatures so we can improve people's lives. Um, and so that means, um, you know, we do a lot of electoral work, but also we try to come up with uh, you know ways for lawmakers to uh, do things like, for example, cap the price of insulin. Uh, something that's been in the news recently. Um, and that is something where kind of you saw how at the federal level that effort failed, but really um, at the state level, uh, we've had a lot of success there. In fact, uh, you know, two states where we managed to flip legislatures in the past, Maine and Virginia, both passed insulin caps. And so it kind of goes to show you that uh, whenever the federal, you feel like the federal government might be letting you down, actually uh, a lot of stuff can be picked up at the state's level. Yeah. And so, you know, um, you have a number of reasons, right? Like, like, you know, aside from it, you being able to sort of pass things at the state level, like, like you have tactical and, and sort of strategic arguments for why, um, it's important to focus on states, not only for like state level stuff, but also for the, the, for the federal government, right? Yeah. Um, you know, unfortunately we're in an era where, uh, states, are really seen, uh, especially by the far right, as ways to kind of increase their power at the federal level. And I think this all goes back to uh, the Powell memo, which uh, I think you guys might have uh, discussed here, but just for everyone, I'll, I'll briefly go over it. it was uh, basically, if you look at the kind of the post-World War II liberal uh, consensus, uh, you know, really special interests were really annoyed at that. And so uh, Lewis Powell, who was at the time uh, kind of the chief counsel at the uh, Chamber of Commerce, wrote a really brief memorandum uh, about kind of how the right could retake the country. And it really focused on three key areas. Uh, one was uh, the federal judiciary reshaping that. Um, two was kind of creating alternate media and institutions that would promote right-wing ideas. 
And the third was taking over state legislatures. Um, and you can see all three of them have kind of worked in concert. Um, I, I think especially with the recent Dobbs decision, I think that was kind of a perfect illustration of how that worked, where you have these uh, right-wing uh, media and institutions talking about, you know, all these insane ideas about how, uh, you know, really taking away uh, reproductive freedom would be a good thing for the country. You have a federal court that has been captured by right-wing interests, even though they don't represent a majority of the country, um, ruling that uh, there could be significant restrictions on it. And then you have state legislatures uh, passing just incredibly restrictive laws, uh, again, contravening the majority, the will of the majority of the people. And so it's kind of this three-legged stool. And basically, you know, what we... One of our missions is, in addition to kind of, you know, the ideal world, it's like, hey, yeah, we're passing. And, you know, in some states, they're re they really are doing some really forward thinking and unique and wonderful policies. But also it's kind of that we need to attack this third leg of the right wing uh, stool uh, to kind of try to topple them from power and to kind of return the country to the people, to the majority of the people, basically. Yeah, this is the this is a thing that I think even today, a lot of liberals sort of haven't come to grips with that. Basically, they sort of. Um, Democrats, at least, were were asleep at the switch to some degree with regard to state legislatures, you know, um, particularly the amount of power they represent. I think most Americans, you know, there's surveys that like a, a large majority of Americans can't name their state representative or their state senator, um, you know, just don't have any sort of interaction with this. And there's a perception that, um, you know, state legislatures are sort of these powerless backwaters. But not only, you know, uh, are they a, a way to exercise significant power at the state level, what they can give you and what the rice developing, right, is a, a springboard for national power. Where yeah. basically you control the state level electoral institutions and then that gives you a road into Congress and the presidency, right? Yeah. And so, I mean, the, the most obvious example of this uh, was in 2010, the Red Map Project which uh, a lot of people have covered, but it was basically Republicans were saying, I mean, Carl Rove had a, uh, an editorial in the Wall Street Journal saying, we are going to take over state legislature so we can gerrymander maps for Congress. Uh, they said they were going to do it and they did it. Um, and they just significantly outspent um, the, the uh, uh, Democratic Party in a lot of races. And there were plenty of examples, like in Pennsylvania, for example, just the level of sophistication on those Republican campaigns in 2010 was just beyond what they had seen before and what Democrats had do preparing for in 2010. Um, you want to flash forward a bit, you know, to today and, you know, not only are they gerrymandering congressional seats, but there's this really, uh, concerning case arising out of a gerrymandering suit, but that could have significant implications called Moore v. Harper. Um, and what that is, is the North Carolina legislature is arguing to the Supreme Court that because the Constitution gives, quote unquote, state legislatures plenary power over determining how elections are conducted, uh, that means that state legislatures should be able to basically say, you know, conduct elections without any oversight from a state's uh, executive or judicial branch. Because in North Carolina, their state Supreme Court said that the congressional districts were too gerrymandered under the state Constitution. Now, some people are saying this is just, oh, this is just kind of a gerrymandering fight. But what it really is, is it would kind of give uh, total unchecked power over elections to state legislatures. And the Supreme Court has also said uh, state legislatures can gerrymander themselves as much as they want uh, without any uh, oversight from the people. Uh, and, you know, um, and so in that decision, they said, well, you know, you could always pass a um, uh, an initiative in your state that provides for uh, an independent redistricting commission like in, like they have in Michigan, for example. But the Supreme Court could now come back and say, well, actually, the state legislature has supreme power over everything, every uh, election law coming out of the state, um, and there's nothing you can do about it. So you would have a gerrymandered state legislature that could, in theory, and this is something that uh, Republicans kind of had a half-hearted effort toward doing in 2020, but they could have a full one in 2024, is having state legislatures basically throwing out the results of an election saying, actually, you know, it's like, oh, well, you know, Joe Biden got more votes than Donald Trump, but we as the state legislature believe that Donald Trump should have won the election. And under the independent state legislature theory, they could do that. And there'd be no way for the state's judiciary or executive to prevent them from doing anything. So it's kind of a, a scary moment that we're in a bit right now, if we keep going down this road. 
And in fact, you know, from what your website and blog discuss, that is the cover that the Arizona state rep would have wanted. And, and can you talk a bit about why the effort by Trump to steal the election failed and, and why it might not have had uh, the yeah. court already ruled on this? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, yeah, going back to the January 6th commission, um, if you watched uh, Rusty Bowers, the, um, who was the outgoing speaker of the House in Arizona, um, you know, he said that Trump. Uh, campaign came to him and said, you know, we want you to have the legislature deliver this election to us. And Bauer said, you know, well, I don't have any legal authority to do that. And what the independent state legislature doctrine and more V Harper would do is give him that legal authority to say, well, actually under the, you know, the, the Supreme court would say, well, under the constitution, uh, state legislature is allowed to decide who the winner of an election is. Um, which again, and, and again, this is uh, like, this was a, for a long time, this was kind of a fringe theory, but you saw really in 2000 uh, in Bush v. Gore, I think it was Justice Rehnquist mentioned it in dicta, and you have seen since then, uh, I think Justice Thomas, Alito, um, uh, Bear, or Gorsuch, uh, and uh, Kavanaugh have all expressed an openness to it, and we don't know Barrett's uh, stance on it, so it's again, it, it's a very uh, nerve wracking thing. And also, by the way, Roberts actually did signal an openness to this as well in a previous case that he's kind of walked that back a bit, I think, as kind of the court has gone further right than he liked. Uh, so, again, this is this was a fringe theory for most of the existence of the Constitution, um, really, since around the 1830s, every state has had popular elections determine electoral vote winners since then, you know, basically since the founding of, uh, since the start of the constitution, um, pretty much every state has had a state legislature working with the executive and judicial branch to manage elections within a state. So it would be totally ahistorical and it's totally fringe, but again, that hasn't stopped the state Supreme court before. So again, it's a really kind of nerve wracking moment that we're in. Yeah. And it would be, you know, maybe just to, to clarify this point a little bit, like uh, a coup, it would be like an overturning of constitution as as understood by any sort of halfway reasonable person. You know, every coup just about in history has had some sort of piece of paper that people wave around and be like, I'm legitimate doing this because of incredibly tendentious argument. You know, it, uh, uh, it would be equivalent to, you know, um, uh, 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 some kind of thing going up in reverse and Biden just declaring, uh, just having like the military arrest the Supreme Court, you know, so like just just a total intervention of power with no kind of actual legal legitimacy that you could, uh, um, you know, defend with a straight face. Um, but maybe getting back to the like the the question of state legislatures, you know, you talked about red map, right? Um, you know. What did they spend on that? Something like twenty million dollars. Uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, yeah. It, it, again, a state legis a competitive. So not just like kind of the local sleepy affair, but a competitive state legislative election, one that like a group like ours would be involved in, costs about three percent as much as a competitive U.S. Senate election. Um, yeah. You know, the amounts of money are just like, for example, in twenty twenty, uh, we spent about. I think it was three hundred thousand dollars helping defend the majority in Maine uh, in the Maine Senate. At the same time, Sarah Gideon had fifteen million dollars left over from her failed Senate campaign, uh, U.S. Senate campaign in that state, and that just goes to show you the resource disparity here. So, if you want to think about, you know, kind of, and especially, you know, there are a lot of times where federal politics can just seem so kind of hard to impact. But at the state, at the state level, you really can have a huge impact in, you know, in these elections. And you have also just really close margins. I mean, just, you know, for example, in 2021 in Virginia, you know, uh, Terry McAuliffe lost by a couple of percentage points. But if we had just flipped 300 votes across two seats in the House of Delegates, we would have prevented Republicans from taking a majority there. The margins you're talking about here are just like at like so thin. And the amounts of money you need are just so much less that, you know, you can just really maximize your impact if you want to donate money at the state legislative level. So do you have a, a, a theory or, or a, I don't know, strategy, some thoughts on how to like focus the minds of like 
shall I say, you know, like NPR liberals, like, like there's, there's been this plague of candidates like state level or, or even like a, a congressional candidates running against the hate objects of the Democratic Party in totally impossible doomed races like against Mitch McConnell. They raised what, like $20 million for that Amy McGrath, right? Lady to run against him. She lost by like 20 or 30 points. Um, and it was just like, just pouring money down the tubes. And now you see these grifter candidates popping up, you know, to like, like run against Lauren Boebert or something and, and to, to just basically trick, um, you know, MSNBC watchers into, into funding these, these campaigns. Whereas if you were to just divert a, l- a little bit, may- maybe, you know, say half the resources of the McGrath campaign into a systematic, you know, running candidates in as many state uh, districts as possible. And, um, you know, uh, uh, even, dr- you know, trying to draw new maps. Um, how, how do you, think that 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 you could get more attention i mean aside from you know tweeting a lot <laughs> well you know it, it, at some level i've kind of come to peace with a lot of what i mean it's you know listen people still will pay money for like a water diviner you know <laughs> and so you're never going to get rid of that i mean i think certainly it would be great if kind of like like you said kind of the broader media uh that is consumed by people who want to make this country a better place uh we're more attentive to kind of hey uh maybe we shouldn't let kind of grifters and scammers on our shows uh i think that but i again that's something that i don't really have a lot of control over and so really i mean i I, you know i I appreciate any platform i can get to kind of get the word out about states and you know people really are receptive i think to our message kind of you know maybe not the scale we want but we do have uh you know and and but they're just the bottom line is just there are a lot of you know really important issues that are decided in the states and we just kind of need to keep talking about that i think the Dobbs decision really highlighted that i think uh you know the potential more v harper case coming up highlights that i think going back to you know the fact that uh the federal government can't uh cap insulin prices but states can highlight that and it's just kind of going back to the fact that the issues that you care about really are decided at the state level. And it's just, you, you need to kind of keep coming back to that on whatever platform you can uh, find your way onto. I, I really like how your, your website lays out state by state, how many seats it would take to flip the Senate or the house in which state and, and what difference that would make. Um, because then people have a tangible, you know, an ask like, look, this is doable and this is what will happen. And this is why it's important. Do you want to give a few examples of certain states and what the, the landscape looks like uh, coming up on, on these midterms? Yeah, I, I mean, I think uh, probably the most exciting opportunity would be in Michigan. So in Michigan, um, I think in every election in the two, in the 2010s, except for one, um, uh, Democrats got more votes than Republicans in the state house, uh, statewide. But Democrats never held a majority there. And it's because of gerrymandering. But in 2018, Michigan voters passed uh, an, an initiative where um, they would implement uh, um, a uh, independent redistricting commission, and so that independent redistricting commission, I would say, was, you know, the maps like aren't perfect necessarily, but you're, they're not like Republican gerrymanders, um, and so you have a chance to flip. I think um, the Senate, you actually have a better chance in the Senate than the House, but you really have an opportunity there for the first time in decades, giving Democrats some power in the Michigan legislature. And, um, you know, one thing we saw also in Virginia in 2021 was, um, the top of the ticket ties really closely to, tied really closely to state legislative results. And so Whitmer, um, I think is, she's running a strong campaign against a very far right opponent. And so hopefully, um, you know, she can kind of, uh, do well enough in enough districts across the state that we could see, you know, a Michigan, you know, ideally Michigan would get like a trifecta even, um, Similarly, I think Maine is, you know, one that I keep coming back to because that is really a success story that we've had because they, um, you know, um, back in 2018, they had, before the election, they had a Republican governor, a Democratic House and a Republican Senate. Uh, after 2018, we were able to flip it, uh, the chambers and, and the governorship. And since then, we've been able to pass, um, you know, again, like I said, insulin cap is the one that I'm, Particularly happy about. There's also things around like clean water, uh, you know, good jobs, just all sorts of areas where they were able, 
really to improve people's lives in Maine. And then what you saw coming out of the 2020 elections is that even though you have Susan Collins winning statewide in 2020, um, you saw Democrats maintain their majorities. Uh, but now there are new maps in Maine. Um, and actually, a majority of state house districts under the new maps uh, would have gone for Trump in 2016. So, you know, there's a real chance, actually, that we could lose those majorities in Maine just because the uh, the maps are, you know, maybe especially at the House level, maybe a little skewed, skewed Republican. Uh, so what you need. So, again, that's a really important defense opp- uh, opportunity for us. Uh, so, yeah, those are kind of two that I really want to highlight off the bat. Talk about abortion a little bit. Um, how do you see the, the, the Dobbs decision as being a, a potential lever for, um, you know, both influencing like these state elections, but also, you know, giving a, a method to, you know, protect, uh, the, the, the right to choose. Um, we saw in Kansas, you know, the, the, the pro-choice thing won by, uh, 18 percentage points, I believe. Yeah. Um, it was phrased in a pretty conservative fashion from what I can tell, but it was still like the, the battle lines were drawn. Um, and then conservatives drew up the, the ballot initiative, if I'm not mistaken, which was intended to remove protections from the constitution of Kansas that the Supreme court said, uh, was in there. And, uh, they wrote it in an intentionally confusing way and put it on the ballot in a primary election, which is very low turnout or it normally would be. And so that is like consciousness of trying to trick people, you know, that, that they think they know probably that their own position here of banning abortion with no really exceptions whatsoever is very unpopular. So speak to that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I think Kansas really shows you just how out of touch a lot of these extremist candidates are with um, the people. And, I think also what you've seen in the past and what might change in 2022 is you saw people who, again, you know, people who maybe historically had voted Republican, but maybe were voting Democratic at the top of the ticket, um, were still voting Republican for state legislature. I think, you know, just because, you know, it takes a while for people's uh, habits to change. Um, and so, um, but I think the Dobbs, what the Dobbs decision really highlights is, you know, oh, well, that decision is actually, you know, like your decision to keep voting Republican down ticket, especially a lot of like suburban areas where Republicans tended to outrun Biden, you actually like, you know, there's, there's significant consequences from you continuing to do that. And, um, you know, I think in a lot of ways, the kind of the extremist right is the dog that caught the car. Um, and they, you know, like in all these states, they've had just all these, they've, they've had so many regressive policies that they've been waiting to implement and they keep implementing them, even in the face of all this public disapproval. And, you know, I think their bet is, you know, uh, well, we can kind of keep defying physical gravity or political gravity because it's a midterm. And, but, you know, the historically the out party does well in the midterm. But I think, you know, that, that analysis ignores the fact that, uh, a big, a big contributor to kind of uh, an out party's midterm victories is the idea of thermostatic public opinion, where, uh, which is basically the public needs to act as a thermostat, turning down the heat. Uh, on the gov- from you know they feel like the governing party is overheating things need to turn things down. Well, you know I think that broadly Democrats really have not overstepped their mandate from the voters, whereas uh, you know Republicans have not presented themselves as people who um, are you know uh, are uh, uh, you know a moderating force. Uh, they're you know they think they've been really shown to be extremists, and so. That certainly gives, uh, you know, I, I still think that whenever you have a midterm like this, there are certain structural advantages beyond thermostatic public opinion that the out party may have, but it certainly would hopefully mitigate some of those advantages that they might have and that we can have a pretty competitive midterm election, even if it isn't, you know, necessarily uh, a history defying victory for Democrats. Again, because also we're just getting better maps in some places, even just kind of a similar to 2020 outcome could end up delivering some big wins. So then, Aaron, do you buy into this analysis from some uh, pollsters who, who say, you know, in a normal midterm election, and, the, you know, they have this definition for normal, um, you know, the Democrats would be in trouble, but, you know, these these outliers that are not normal, that that's where there's a chance. To get. Do, do you buy into that kind of modeling uh, or 
or not. And if, and if you do, what's your take on whether the, the circumstances here constitute a normal environment for the midterms? Uh, yeah. So, um, you know, again, I think that they're the N of midterm elections in the modern era is small enough where so you, small. you don't really want, you don't really have a normal, but you do have a pattern of, again, um, the out party, um, typically doing well. And I mean, certainly, you know, since, uh, you know, basically I've been able to vote, uh, the out party has, you know, gotten, had some gains in mid the midterm elections. Um, but yeah, I think these, you know, the pollsters are kind of onto what we've really seen. It's a, at a fundamentals level too, because also you do have, um, for example, like in Washington, they have an all party primary, um, where you see kind of results broken down by party at that level. And so, um, a recent analysis now that kind of all the votes have come in there was that it's maybe a little less democratic than 2020, but certainly not like a 2010 or 2014 wave coming. Um, we've also seen in special elections, actually, um, we helped uh, flip uh, a seat in the Michigan House in a special election that was actually conducted, I think it was the day after the Dobbs leak. Um, now, she was up against a really kind of totally extreme far right candidate. But what we saw is that Michigan had a bunch of special elections on that day. And what we really did see was basically the more extreme uh, Republican candidates actually ended up doing worse relative to the top lines than um, the more, I would say, mainstream ones. Uh, because you did have one district where basically there were three elections. The most extreme Republican candidate ran like 20 points behind. A similarly extreme, but maybe less outwardly so, one you know, ran behind Trump, which again is something that you wouldn't expect in a special election conducted during a Democratic presidency. And then the mainstream one, kind of the most, the normal Republican, quote unquote, he ran about even with Biden in his, or with Trump in his seat. And so, um, again, this, that's a small sample size there. But if you look at kind of the broader special election con context, we have seen that specials, you know, there has been a lot of energy on both sides in specials. We saw in Kansas, you know, there's, and so, I don't think that you're going to see necessarily the Democratic turnout drop off that you might worry about. You could still have massive Republican turnout. Um, you know, obviously they're, you know, they have plenty to be mad about. Um, and, but also, you know, that it, there is the concept of, you know, you need to persuade people to vote for you as well. And right now Republicans are really showing just how extreme and out of touch so many of their candidates are. Um, that, uh, it doesn't, definitely gives Democrats a chance. And we've been kind of seeing that in some of the election results that we've been seeing in addition to the polling that we've been seeing, uh, as well. What's your take on the, uh, the, the phenomenon of, of Democrats, like the, the D triple C going into Republican primaries to try to boost up the craziest, uh, uh, candidate. Um, it's it strikes it's they, they were doing that against one of the guys who uh, voted to impeach Trump, as I recall. And it strikes me as like, you know, possibly a bad idea, but fundamentally coming from like a, the organic constituency of the Republican Party, like they like you're sort of yeah. intervening by pointing out that this guy's crazy and then they vote for him. Um, you know, there was like a modest effort in Pennsylvania uh, to to lift up Doug Mastriano but it was tiny. And then he won by like 20 points. It was not close. Yeah. Um, so yeah, as a preliminary matter, um, I think uh, um, I believe that politics is not 7D chess, it's checkers. Um, yeah. And so I'm inherently uh, skeptical of any effort that tries to be 7D chess. Um, and yeah, I mean, uh, Ryan, I think you hit on the point where, you know, it's, it's not the, it's a, it's not a supply issue where, Oh, Democrats are supplying people with ads that are pointing out that are making Republicans elect these crazy people. It's a demand issue where the Republican base generally likes these guys. I mean, I think the, the, your point on, uh, the Mastriano race is a good one because, you know, there was a very kind of, you know, modest effort by the Democratic nominee who didn't have a primary of his own to, uh, define Mastriano during, while his primary was still going on because they probably saw the same polls that everyone else did and, Mastriano was winning his primary by about 20 points. Um, and so, you know, a $500,000 ad buy as a shot, of, you know, that, that's not moving the needle on that necessarily, but it is kind of just defining this guy out of the gate. And he has been defined out of the gate. Um, and, you know, you, if you look at, you know, certainly the polling in Pennsylvania shows that people tend to are starting to understand that Mastriano really is an extremist and that the Republican Party of Pennsylvania really has dominates a lot of really extreme candidates. So, yeah, um, in general, I 
try not to, I think that in politics you should never really try to outthink yourself, but certainly, I mean, the Republican base really seems to want this. And, and by the way, you know, in Arizona, um, if you look at, at that, um, you know, I don't know if there are any like Democratic efforts to back Lake in the gubernatorial primary. And I mean, keep in mind, she barely won that. I mean, it was a pretty close call. But in their state legislative primaries in Arizona, the extremist candidates, you know, almost went, you know, almost bad a thousand. Um, and they won by margins far exceeding whatever uh, Lake did. So, um, you know, certainly, you know, I don't even know if these efforts necessarily are working. Uh, oh, and similarly, I think in Maryland, actually, Democrats boost, you know, there was a, an effort by Democrats to boost a uh, extremist gubernatorial nominee and he won. But he also won by the same margins in the same places as the extremist nominee in the attorney general race there, which Democrats didn't boost. So I think that these efforts, you know, again, I don't really know how effective they actually are. Um, uh, and really just kind of uh, when you see these extremists coming out of these primaries, it's because the voters in those primaries want those extremists. Yeah, it seems like a waste of money, especially given what you're saying about what yeah. money can do in these like state and local races, you know, where money goes a long way. It seems like much better uses are out there. I mean, the Democrats yeah. especially shouldn't try a seventh dimensional chess. They, they can <laughs> barely handle three dimensions. Some of them are so old. But, um, you know, so, so like, uh, I don't know. Yeah, it just seems bad. Plus, the last time I remember them getting really behind an extremist candidate is when the Democrats were hoping that Donald Trump would win the primary back in 2016. And look how that yeah, out. I'm kind of amazed how more people are just like totally scarred by that. Um, but yeah, I, I'm and hey, uh, you know, I actually think that there are a lot of um, very effective people who are trying to do the right thing. Who and unfortunately, there are a few who are, who maybe are doing the things that I don't agree with with, with donor money that uh, are getting some headlines. But uh, yeah, I mean, certainly there are better uses of donor money than spending money for Republican candidates. Uh, on television. Um, and yes, uh, so the money that would go to there certainly would basically, you, you know, for what they spent basically trying to elect a, a Republican nominee in Maryland with, you know, really didn't see that much impact. You basically could have, probably could have funded, you know, a bunch of campaigns in neighboring Pennsylvania where you could have a chance of uh, flipping a chamber. Pennsylvania. This is so okay. I wanted to ask you about Pennsylvania. You read my mind. You know, Ryan and I, we live in, in Philadelphia and uh, we had Nikhil Saval on here to talk about the, the miracle of, of a bipartisan bill to actually, you know, help people. <laughs> and so well, what's your take on the landscape in, in the state uh, legislature in PA? Well, uh, Pennsylvania is kind of similar to Michigan where – uh, for two decades, their legislature was uh, working out off of maps that were Republican gerrymanders. And uh, because in Pennsylvania, they have a bipartisan commission where the tiebreakers appointed by the state Supreme Court. Um, and so for the past, so for the aughts and the teens, that tiebreaker was appointed by a Republican majority, which ended up appointed, and they appointed a Republican judge as a tiebreaker in both of those, and they drew Republican maps. Uh, the Democratic majority now, because Democrats flipped the state uh Supreme Court of Pennsylvania in 2015 uh, appointed uh, not a Democratic judge drawing a Democratic gerrymander, but an academic who um, basically drew, uh, especially at the state house level, he drew uh, fair you know maps that reflected the state politically, maybe with a slight Republican lean. Uh, there are 203 state house seats under his map. Uh, 103 of them would have gone for Biden and 100 for Trump. Um, and so, you know, and so that provides you a pretty, pretty clear path. Pennsylvania, though, um, you know, I think maybe because you guys live in the Commonwealth, maybe you could appreciate this is, um, actually Pennsylvania has one of the highest incumbent reelection rates in, in, in the country. Um, and it's because in Pennsylvania, you have, um, uh, a professionalized legislature with full-time lawmakers and uh, significant staff. And so basically lawmakers there are able to really basically, you know, they can do their job full-time. They can get out in the community. Uh, a state house seat has about 60,000 people in it. So you can really get your name out there um, and you can get your name in the news talking about the bridge that you got, the new rec center you got, et cetera, things like that. And so it, incumbents are tougher to be in Pennsylvania than they are in other states. Uh, and so that can kind of limit the size of a wave potentially, um, you know, upside and downside. But because you have these new maps that have gone from a Republican gerrymander to a Democratic, you know, not, no, to a fair maps, because, I mean, that might even have a slight Republican lean, um, you will probably see gains in Pennsylvania in the House. Uh, the Senate uh, was kind of a, uh, the Senate maps are kind of skewed more Republican. 
Um, and so uh, it might be harder there. But also they have staggered terms in the Senate. So, uh, but basically, really, what you can see in Pennsylvania is um, a two. You know, well, hopefully make gains this cycle. I think we should make gains this cycle, and then um, you could probably win a majority in 2024, regardless of what happens this cycle. And, you know, when you're talking about democracy as well and attempts to overthrow the election, in Pennsylvania, lawmakers' terms actually uh, begin in December, um, which means that um, any kind of post-election shenanigans could be curtailed if you end up flipping the uh, legislature in 2024. Uh, so, uh, so Pennsylvania, I think, is a really kind of exciting state um, where, you know, and, and again, Democrats, you know, if things really get good for the party, um, if they end up basically running even with Shapiro, I mean, you could certainly see potentially a majority. But historically, that's kind of not what you would expect, but you would expect progress in Pennsylvania. That's great. I, can I just follow up quickly on the incumbency advantage point? Because I, I yeah. wonder if people know about uh, state legislatures, especially the full-time staff uh, and full-time professional lawmaking gig versus the places whose representatives come in, you know, uh, less frequently and they, they get paid less. And that has its own problems, right? Because it tends to, to draw yeah. wealthy people, wealthy people who can, who don't need to be paid full-time, right? So can you talk about the, those two different types, how prevalent each is and, and what the, you know, advantages, disadvantages are in terms of democratic values? Yeah. I mean, um, yeah. I mean, so Pennsylvania probably has one of the most professional, professionalized legislatures in the country. And again, um, you know, similar, I think uh, New York and California similarly have them, but the most states don't have that. Most states um, really uh, have legislatures where uh, you have, you know, very low salary, part time. Um, and so that really limits who can actually serve in them. Um, and so like in New Hampshire, for example, their state constitution, Actually, set really you know says uh, you know you don't make a salary you just get a per diem, um, and so basically in New Hampshire, <laughs> you know, most lawmakers are either independently wealthy or retired, um, and you know you can see definitely a gap there. And so I mean certainly I think that you you know when you're thinking about a legislature you want someone who can do that job full time. I mean it is because you're dealing with such important issues you don't want to have to deal with. And, and also it's kind of, you know, um, if you're working for a law firm that does business with the state and you're a lawmaker, um, you know, I mean, that's not like an ideal situation, but I mean, a lot of people kind of have to, you know, on both, on both sides, like, you know, and so it's just, it's better, I think, for a functioning democracy to have a full-time legislature. Yeah. I think Is that a push? Is that something on, on any agenda to push for more of those? Uh, you know, um, I, I, I try to uh, focus on kind of the most immediate issues to address at hand. And I think we just have something where it's like, I think kind of <laughs> if, if, if there are less dire things to address, I think that's yeah, definitely a yeah. structural thing. I would, we're I would we're in the ICU trying to revive the body politics corpse, you know, keep the yeah. body politic alive. I got yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, I get it. We can, we can talk about your uh, you know, sore knee later. <laughs> your cholesterol later. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It is pretty remarkable that, that Texas, which is like, you know, a largest European country in terms of its like wealth and size. They, they, their state legislature, I think it gets paid, they get paid in the house at least like $7,500 a year and they meet every other year unless yep. the governor calls us a, a special session. It's like, what, why, why? Do we even have this level of government? We need a national. <laughs> but look how smooth things go, you know, in Texas. Well, the, the, and, things are never. <laughs> and what also you see in a situation like that in Texas is that really what it ends up meaning is that the state executive ends up having just way more power than the framers of the state constitution intended. Uh, yeah. Because, um, you know, they're not in the state capital. If they're not in session, there's only so much they can do to rein in the executive branch. Uh, and again, you know, other than, yeah, so, uh, every other year they go into session and unless the governor wants them in the state capital, they don't, they're not going to be there. Uh, and so, yeah, um, cer certainly, um, you know, uh, having a more professionalized legislature, I think would overall lead to better outcomes. Um, but let, let me pivot back to, back to Pennsylvania for one, a different question on yeah. the, on the level of, you know, uh, statewide federal candidates, you know, what do you have anything you look for or like ways that state level candidates for uh, Congress and I think Senate especially would make sense could help out in your sort of project? Like I'm thinking of Fetterman, 
who's sort of shtick. And I don't know if it's how true it is in reality, but like he's saying every county, you know, like we're all about um, all of Pennsylvania, you know, from like the 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 uh, broke, um, you know, parts of Appalachia over to, to Philly and Pittsburgh. Like, can those can that sort of approach help in terms of like uh, uh, bring some attention to these down ballot races? Yeah, I mean, to the extent that um, uh, a statewide candidate is you know trying to get people across the state to turn out, um, that is certainly helpful. Uh, you know, in Pennsylvania, for example, um, you know, the city of Johnstown, uh, which you know is in an economically distressed area, um, you know, has a competitive state uh, legislative race. That is, you know, Johnstown is not a place that necess- that you know a lot of statewide Democrats necessarily would look at. But um, to the extent that Fetterman and Shapiro are, you know, working in Johnstown, uh, that helps out everyone. And so, yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, and overall, I mean, the best thing that these candidates can do is really just, yeah, making sure that people really know to support the whole ticket, um, and you know, just really know that, you know, the extremism that people are seeing from kind of the top of the ticket candidates, you know, is not a unique case to them. Is is the entire body of primary voters electing their opponents is supporting extremists. And that means that a lot of their opponents happen to be extremists too. And so again, I think that needs to be part of the overall message that is going out there is that um, you really just have a pervasive problem, not limited to just a few candidates. Um, so yeah, that, that, that I think is kind of the message that I would want to see overall. And then also just, you know, to these, I, you know, there are certain uh, statewide, Candidates like uh, Roy Cooper in North Carolina, for example, because he's the governor, um, you know, he has really been involved in trying to make sure that the state legislature uh, is, you know, is responsive to the people of the state of North Carolina. Um, so, yeah. On that on that extremism question, I wonder, I guess it's kind of a vague thought that I have, but you were talking about Arizona where they have elected like. Uh, you know, in primary elections and and to federal office and to state office, uh, you know, Nazis. Paul Gosar is a Nazi. Um, and there's really no like disputing that. Um, he's constantly hanging out with white supremacists, you know, like the 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 tells are all there. Um, but it strikes me that like you there's a fairly stiff, like instinctive resistance to believing that like uh, you know, m- making the case to ordinary voters, even liberals, that like these Republicans want to set up a fascist dictatorship, like they're going to try to do that if they can. Um, and, you know, like if you ever want to have an election again in this state, you need to vote for the Democrat, even if you think that they're tax raising, you know, commies or, you know, if you believe in democracy, even a little bit, the n- not having to live under the boot of a former, you know, TV broadcaster until, sh- you know, for the rest of your life. Uh, this is what you, you got to sort of swallow your, you know, uh, uh, convictions. How do you like I don't know if you have sort of um, messaging data or, or polling on like how, how you could. You could. This strikes me as something like a powerful argument. I mean, it should be like yeah. almost by definition, but it's not something we're really seeing all that much. I, as far as I can tell, in the campaign messaging. Yeah, well, and so in, in Arizona, um, you know, the, that extremism is not limited to uh, statewide or federal candidates. Um, we, I think, there are now, I think, at least two uh, state senate nominees uh, on the Republican side who have who think that who have said QAnon's real. Um, again, like I said earlier, I, you know, the far right, like Trump's and Dorsey's have gone about, about basically a thousand in the primary, uh, in Arizona. So, you know, and in Arizona, you know, there are a couple of forces at play here. One is, um, that in Arizona you have term limits, which means that it's just harder for kind of the people who got into this, not necessarily to make Trump, you know, their, their, uh, dictator for life, um, are just kind of have, have to leave the legislature, um, and then you also have in Arizona a more transient population and kind of pretty loose uh, restrictions on kind of on residency for running for legislature. So you just kind of see a lot of extremists uh, district shopping. Um, and you, like if you look at kind of who's getting nominated, it's like the Turning Point USA like comms director. It is a Trump big lie lawyer. These are the people that get nominated for Republican state legislative districts. 
Um, and it, it, and just there are such low barriers to entry for them that, the, you know, it's like, you know, there are some states like Michigan, for example, there still are a bunch of Republican candidates, incumbents there who have said, you know, I'm a conservative, I believe in conservative values, but I'm also not going to use my, my role as a lawmaker to overturn the election results. So in Michigan, kind of, if you fall a few seats short, you still could prevent the end of democracy. In Arizona, you don't have that. So then I think, you know, kind of your question to me is, you know, what, what's the messaging on that? And I think actually, if you look at work worked in Kansas, actually kind of works there too. And the fight is against kind of uh, extremism and the fight is against kind of curtailing your freedom. Because I mean, yeah. what is, I mean, democracy is kind of the, you know, how you ensure freedom. You are, you know, you're talking about people who support the end of democratic self-rule and what is less free than that. Um, and so I think, you know, um, the extreme, you know, again, you, you're running against extremism and you're running against kind of the end of freedom. And, uh, you know, I, I think uh, those messages, uh, I, I hope, are getting out there. Um, um, so, yeah, I, I think that's kind of how you address that concern. Are you seeing any benefit to passing like the insulin cap legislation where people who maybe didn't understand the value of having Democrats in power uh, see the benefits and then switch allegiance or, or maybe bring out new voters. Is there, is there anything to like on the state level getting shit done actually helps boost the ability to get more people in office, right? Yeah. I think Maine was a really big example of that in 2020, where again, you had Collins winning statewide, but state Democrats did fine. Uh, we actually increased our numbers in the state Senate by one. In that, uh, so, um, yeah, um, I, and that was a very productive legislature uh, that passed a lot of just you know good bills, and you saw Democrats winning in areas that Trump carried by double digits. Um, and so, yeah, th there was a virtuous cycle there. Um, and so, yeah, that that's uh, that that's the example that I always come back to. And again, we're we're going to be back there, and hopefully, again in 2022, people can kind of see all the progress that's been made in Maine, and you know keep continuing, you know keep voting for. A legislature, which, by the way, the main legislature, uh, especially the state Senate, has flipped a lot over the past few decades. It's just a very elastic state. And so hopefully we can kind of get a more durable uh, kind of pro-people coalition in Maine governing the state. Yeah. And, and by the same token, do you think it's fair to conclude in Virginia, you know, the Democrats, like they passed a whole bunch of stuff and then they lost the election um, last year? But it, I don't think you could really say they lost the election because they like did a bunch of fairly popular, you know, legislation. Right. I mean, it was like the classic yeah. off, off, off year thing that, that the out of power party tends to win. Right. Like people. Yeah, were, and wasn't, what wasn't the timing of that? Like the critical race theory scare was at its height. Yeah. Well, I, I think it, in, well, honestly, I think in Virginia, the, the timing that was worst of all, um, was really around kind of inflation was just really kind of picking up then. And, um, I think a lot of our candidates heard just like people are really kind of exasperated by rising prices. Um, and, you know, we, again, like I said, you know, there are things like, uh, the insulin caps that they've had, they have passed as well that, you know, help, could help address that. But just, um, you know, I think it was just they were, they were up against the brunt of a national environment at the time that was just so bad for them. But again, in Virginia, if you want to look at kind of the progress that they made, if you look at uh, 2017, the last off-off year, uh, Democratic state legislative candidates ran uh, about five points behind the uh, state's gubernatorial nominee. Go to 2021, and they actually ran ahead of uh, McAuliffe in a lot of our key districts. And overall, by the state, it was about even. Um, and so I think at the very least, they were able to, you know, again, within within the context of their environment, they were able to show to a decent number of, voter, of voters that, um, hey, you know, actually having a, a lawmaker here that aligns with your values really is useful. And we're able to, uh, you know, materially improve the lives of a lot of people, maybe not enough to overcome the size of the wave that hit Virginia in 2021, but certainly enough to mitigate the downside. And again, like I said, 300 votes had flipped. Uh, there would be, you know, you wouldn't have the Republicans controlling the House of Delegates right now. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, in Virginia, I think it was they based, they really improved their station, if not necessarily enough to maintain their majority. Yeah. 
Yeah, and the 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 media coverage of Glenn Youngkin or whatever it was really incredibly credulous. Yeah, um, a guy who is just uh, basically mega chud, you know, was sort of presented as a moderate Republican, you know, and there's just a deep, deep desire among a lot of the political press to find a moderate. You know, oh, they're coming to their senses. They're gonna. This guy's gonna be nominated for president. Like, no, he's basically just like Trump, maybe a little bit less <laughs> well, like overtly nuts. And and also one one other thing it, it, from him that I think is important to point out to distinguish him from a lot of candidates coming up today is Young didn't have to win a primary. He had to win a convention of party insiders basically yeah. to get that nomination. And so he didn't have to kind of take those positions on issues that the base would have wanted him to necessarily take in order to become the nominee. Um, and so, um, so he's kind of, it's a bit of a sui generis thing there as well. And again, in, in Virginia, what we really saw was more than ever, just there was so little in the way of tickets there. And that I think the weaknesses of McAuliffe combined with kind of the young kid boomlet really ended up was, was kind of the biggest factor in seeking a lot of these candidates. The, the fact is that they really did, as much as they could to improve over 2017. And I think the goal going forward is to kind of make it so that eventually they can outrun the, you know, we made a lot of progress and I think we want to make it so that they're eventually outrunning the top of the ticket and that people really can understand um, just how important it is to have lawmakers that align with your values and lawmakers that are working to improve your life. And, you know, just getting that out there, I think it's really key to our mission, bringing back to mm -hmm. kind of why we're here to begin with. Yeah. Well, Aaron, are there other obstacles? Because, you know, gerrymandering, I think, is something that a lot of people are yeah. aware of. And, and, and not that long ago, we used to hear a lot about the Republicans, you know, doing voter ID stuff. Are, are there other things at the state level that are making it harder to vote or, or anti-democratic uh, moves that are being made like the voter ID stuff um, that we just aren't hearing as much about? Yeah, I mean, certainly in Arizona, I'm, you know, I, there, there was a lot more about this going, uh, that was making the news in 2021, I think, before other issues kind of overtook it. But yeah, absolutely. After the 2020 election, there were a lot of different moves in states that had kind of far right legislatures to make it harder to vote. Um, you know, Arizona, uh, which again, if you think about Arizona, Arizona traditionally is one of the states where it's easiest to vote. Um, they've had, uh, mail-in balloting that Republicans supported for decades. Uh, and they were able to successfully curtail some of that. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, and in Georgia, I think, you know, any, any state that has a Republican trifecta uh, certainly passed, more, you know, I don't know if all of them did, but most of them passed some type of law really making it harder for people to vote. Um, and so, yes, that is something, you know, again, uh, the broader kind of just like end of democracy stuff where it is, you know, we are want to end the ability of people to choose their own uh, the people who win elections. There's that, but also there's the smaller board. We also want to make it harder for, you know, we want to make it a smaller electorate that's more uh, geared toward us as well. That's still uh, continues to this day. So on the, um, let's imagine that Democrats, you know, pull a rabbit out of their hat and they actually win, they actually maintain control of Congress. Um, you know, maybe, maybe let's say they get two more senators just, just, just to be, you know, just to, 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 uh, indulge ourselves. What sort of reforms would you like to see coming out of Congress to help your type of work at the state level? Um, like new states, voting rights, what kind of stuff? Um, I, yeah. Um, I would say really the best thing if that happens. Um, certainly, um, I guess some type of, uh, you know, there have been a lot of ideas. That's around around the electoral uh, count act, and I'm not sure they all necessarily um, address the issue. But certainly, making it harder for state legislatures to overturn the results of an election would certainly help me uh, breathe easier at night. I think, yeah, in general, um, you know, there, I, you know, part of the issue here though is there that you have a far right Supreme Court that is just so dedicated. Because again, you go back to the Powell memo that. You know, the federal judiciary really sees state legislatures as a, its partner. Um, and so I think there's, there's what any attempts, I think, to really kind of rein in far right state legislatures, I think the, the federal courts would do their best to block those. And so I think there's just not as much that Congress could do to, uh, really impact that. I mean, I, you know, I think the thing that would probably help them the most was to be a federal ban on gerrymandering state legislatures. And I think, you know, under a normal reading of the 14th Amendment, 
that's possible. But I actually don't think that this Supreme Court will allow Congress to do that. So, I mean, it ultimately becomes just, you know, you, you know, there is no savior coming from Washington, D.C. You really need to keep focusing on state legislatures because um, for the foreseeable future, there's going to be this incredibly powerful tool to either make people's lives better or make them worse. Now, you could expand the court, too. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, yes. So certainly having a pro-democracy Supreme Court would help out a lot if uh, anyone's interested in that. <laughs> and then maybe you have to think even more like uh, – you know, a few moves ahead. So if like the pro act or something, you know, and the NLRB continues to crack down and you, you kind of have the lives of workers in the states, um, supported in a way that allows, I mean, so much in the states has to do with low voter turnout and kind of apathy and various things that themselves could be shifted at the federal level that might, I don't know. Is that, is that true? Do, do you think that like Congress can do things that help? Uh, you and others that are feeding money into those state races, um, you know, bring out new voters or, or help organize and mobilize? Yeah, I mean, I would certainly say lowering barriers to entry for the electorate would be great. Um, you know, I mean, the, the number one reason that people give for not voting is they didn't have the time. So just making it easier to vote in general. Yeah. And yeah, but though, I mean, you know, I, I guess. I caution that expanding- like does, does the legislation that just passed, right? The IRA did, does, yeah. does something like that, that generally makes Democrats seem more favorable. Is that redound to state oh, level stuff? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I, I mean, I would say overall, certainly there are, I mean, you know, if you look at just the past decade, for example, uh, it kind of blows people 10 years ago today, Democrats held the majority in legislatures in Arkansas and West Virginia. Um, you know, yep. even after 2010. Okay. Um, yeah, I know that's pretty surprising, uh, but really kind of the increased nationalization and polarization of the electorate has made it so that um, there's just you don't have that level of mismatch uh, outside of states like, you know, Wisconsin, for example, that just have horrible gerrymandering that keeps Republicans in power. Um, and so um, because of that, um, I think uh um, you know, yeah, anything you can do to improve the, the um, image of the Democratic Party overall is helpful to us. Yeah. Um, I just have a, a one last question for you. If you have, you know, you being election nerd, you know, type of guy looking at the data, you know, doing the little mental models, the equations flashing before your eyes. If you have any views on this so-called popularism, you know, discussion that we've had and like the, the, that, that if there's, there's some sort of magic sauce for Democrats that if they just say the right things or don't say the right things or the wrong things, uh, as the case may be, uh, <laughs> say, say the wrong things and don't say the right things. That's what I advise. But like, if you have any sort of considered thoughts on this question, my, my, my view on popularism is that um, if you want to be a Democratic comms consultant, the barrier to entry there is actually like really low and that I just, you know, it's like you should absolutely do it. If you think they can be doing a better job, I swear, like I I uh, switched careers when I was like 35 uh, to into my current or yeah, into my current gig. So like it's not too late. Join the fight. If you have an idea on what to do, absolutely. Like, um, but yes, um, in general, I think, yes, say the right things. Don't say the wrong things. I mean, that's pretty good advice. I would say everyone should take it. But above all, help people, damn it. Actually do things for people. Yes, actually do people and help them (laughs) and uh, communicate about all the good things you're doing for them. And, you know, and and yeah, and, and try to maintain some optimism about it, too, and just kind of go forward and, you know, carry that with you. And be like, you know, you can do this. We can do this. It, you know, like don't don't give in to helplessness and kind of these ideas of savvy around. Um, oh, you, you know, like you know, you know, again, politics is checkers. It's not chess. You know, um, just keep fighting and don't like try to outthink yourself. I think that's my overall thoughts. Yeah, yeah. It seems like to to me the Fetterman campaign is. Teaching, teaching some like base, like politics 101, you know, running for dog catcher type stuff, like take your opponent's like biggest vulnerability and just repeat it over and over and over and over again. Um, in that way, I, I forget who said it on Twitter, but that, that Dr. Oz, Fetterman's opponent is now defined as negatively as Democratic presidential candidates usually are, like, like Hillary and, and, and John Kerry with the flip flops. Um, 
you know, that like, I, as you say, it's, it's not a, it's not some sort of rocket science here. We're talking, we're talking about repetition, clear, you know, communication, pick a few popular things and just say it over and over again. And it would be golden. Yeah. And, and again, and I, you know, again, politics, again, politics is a, a discipline that is the, you know, it's the most civic minded one. It's the one that everyone should be able to participate in. And I don't like it when people are just kind of putting up jargon and bears and savvies and things like that. It's like, no, just go out there and advocate for what you want and tell people that and just, you know, be, you know, again, say the right things. Don't say the wrong things. You know what? It all sounds good to me. Yeah. Great. Well, any final comments, Aaron, before we let you go? Uh, yeah, uh, I just want, so um, for everyone here, obviously, please check out our website at statesproject.org. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at statesprojectus, um, and you can follow me on Twitter uh, at Bobby Big Wheel. Um, I never got around to giving my real name. Um, so yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, please, if you if you like this conversation, check us out. Um, again, the ability for you to make a difference at the state level is just so much greater than you might even think right now. And so we'd love to have you on, on the team. Yeah. If any of you are like you, Aaron. effective altruism type people, you want to stretch your marginal <laughs> contribution to this absolute That's limit. We, this is where you go. Uh, yes. Any, anyone who has a lot of money that they want to give, um, you actually, um, you can contact Ryan. He'll give you my email and let's talk. <laughs> Great. <laughs> I like it. Well, thanks for coming on, Aaron. And thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you in the next episode.